Well, today we continue in our series entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. And so let's turn our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. And today's message is entitled Learning to Pray. And let's begin in verse 5 and read our text together. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. So in this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be our name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Learning how to pray. In a moment, we'll see why this was so unique and so uh, incredibly profound in its simplicity as Jesus taught and continued to uh, minister to the multiple uh, multitudes and his disciples there as he taught and showed and introduced the kingdom of heaven to those who were listening. But learning how to pray can be done in many different ways. And so I thought that the way we could begin this morning is by consulting experts on prayer, to listen to their prayers, and to learn from the manner in which they pray. So let's take a look at how experts pray. Thank you for all the doggies. Thank you for that haircut. Please help Christmas to come soon. Thank you for the baby's haircut. Thankful for my cat that lets me dress him in my clothes. Thank you for Jesus' haircut. Please help us to have pancakes in the morning. Please bless the toothache and come. Please protect us from big hungry sharks, tsunamis and lightning, vampires, fires and tornadoes, and mean fish in the ocean like piranhas. Please bless me not to grow a beard. Please bless that the girls won't try to kiss me at recess anymore. Please bless (laughs) 
for me to not get cold this Christmas. Thank you for kitties. Please tell Jesus to bring the dinosaurs back again. Please bless I can share my toys with my sister. Please bless that the Tyrannosaurus Rexes will come back to eat off the bad guys. Please bless so that we won't crash when we're driving. Please help me to be more grateful when you bless me. I'm thankful for this beautiful world that Jesus has created for us to live on. Thank you for loving us, even though we make mistakes. Please just so that my family can be together forever. Please help me to feel bad when I make a mistake. Please help me to be a better big brother. Please bless the poor, even though we don't know who they are. And you know that the spirits in our home are kind and nice. Please bless me to see others as you see them. Please bless I can read the scriptures even though I'm little. Please bless me with more trials because I know that's how I grow. In the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Watching that, I was very discouraged and how, well poor my prayer life actually is you know i don't know about you but do you have a sense that we as individuals have a tendency to overcomplicate things sometimes you know we can take some of the simplest things and make them so complex that in our own minds we rationalize that it's just impossible for us to do them because of their complexity i'm convinced that god heard every one of those little children as they prayed and was concerned with what they prayed and asked for. As Jesus began to teach the people who were there how to pray, let us understand that the Jewish society and culture was inundated with prayer. They prayed all the time. They knew how to pray and to approach God through the covenant in which Moses had given them there at Mount Sinai. But Jesus was now introducing something radically different. He was going to demonstrate and to show that when we pray, we are praying not in a distant, uh, in a distant position of interaction with God, but in the position of a relationship. And in our prayer lives, we have a responsibility. And that responsibility fulfilled allows our requests to be made. As he taught the disciples how to pray, and often this is called the Lord's Prayer, but Jesus would have never prayed this prayer. In fact, the Lord's Prayer is actually found in John 17. But this prayer is simply a template. It shows us in bullet points for us those things that we should pray for and we should remember in our times of prayer. You know, one Christian author wrote that prayer should be as uh, common and familiar to the Christian as breathing is. But yet so often we have a tendency to make prayer our last resort rather than our first choice. You know, often people will come to me in dire circumstances and they'll say to me, Pastor, I am in a real problematic place right now. I'm overwhelmed by my circumstances and I've tried everything else and I feel as if the only thing left for me to do is pray. Now, as a pastor, you have to be careful what you say to people 
But I often would like to say to them at that particular moment in time that, well, maybe if you would have prayed first, you wouldn't be in the problem that you're in now. When I have had the opportunity to pray with people who are true and dynamic prayer warriors, I am bettered for it as a Christian. When you pray with people and all of a sudden, as they're praying, you just feel that the heavens open. And that was a very interesting prayer. (laughs) And uh, as you pray and you just feel the heavens open and God is listening intently to what they're saying. And there are others then who make no spectacle of their prayer life, but you see it in their everyday life, in their consistency, in their stability, and in their their silent strength. Prayer is not an option, it's a necessity for Christians. It's the greatest privilege that we have, but again, we overcomplicate it. We make it so difficult. We, we talk ourselves out of it simply saying, well, we just don't know how to do it. It's talking with God. I, I, I can't make it any easier than that. It's just spending time with Him and talking with Him. Throughout the course of the day, in the morning, in our devotional time. It is a time where we set aside to communicate with God. And let me say this frankly. You know, we talk to God, we call it prayer. But if God talks to us, we call it schizophrenia. What I like to do is I like to take a time when I pray, I read the Word of God, and then I pray about what I have read in the Word of God. As Jesus reminded us that we have been called to be salt and light, defining the righteousness that shall be required for the entering into the kingdom of God, we find that unless the righteousness that we bear exceeds that of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, We will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus, through chapter 5, gave us one account after another where our righteousness must succeed that of the religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders believed in that culture that the three greatest ways of showing their, uh, their religious piety was to give to the poor, to pray openly in the streets, and to fast with everyone knowing and seeing. But Jesus contradicts all of that and says that true righteousness isn't, in, isn't worried about man seeing what we do, but what God sees as we do it. And we pick it up in verse 5 this morning. As last week we talked about giving on to eternity, storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, now he addresses the issue of prayer. And when you pray, he says in verse 5. It's not if you pray, but when you pray. Prayer is meant to be an everyday component of our Christian life. We are to be people of prayer. Again, it is the greatest privilege that we are going to regret that we have neglected when we stand before the Lord. Sometimes I believe that the Number one reason that prayer isn't answered is because prayer is never given. We don't request of God. We don't reach out to God. 
The Bible says that there are three different types of prayer for the believer in Jesus Christ. One is praise, where we simply praise God for all that He has done on our behalf. And there's always a reason to praise God. And I like to formulate my prayer time and take a time for each of the three. And so I often begin by praising God for all that He has done. And I can always find something to praise God about. No matter what I'm going through and no matter what I'm experiencing, there's something always to praise God for. Secondly, intercession. When I pray on behalf of other people, when I pray on the behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ, when I pray on behalf of my wife and my daughter, or my father or my extended family, when I pray for someone I care about and love, and intercede and ask God to work in their life, knowing full well that He loves them even more than I do. Over the last few years, some Christians have questioned the validity of praying for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know why that ever became a question. Salvation is a work of God, and therefore for us to petition God to open the eyes and the heart of an individual would seem common sense to me, wouldn't it? So praying for someone else is definitely a large portion of my personal prayer life. But the third aspect of prayer is supplication, where I pray for my own personal needs. Now, some believe that it is more righteous to not request things from God. I think that's foolish, because where else can I go and who else can supply all of my needs other than God? And so when we pray, I praise the Lord. I pray for others. I pray for my own personal needs. And then I wait on the Lord to answer the prayer. And sometimes that takes a long time to wait. When God answers prayer, he often answers yes, no, or wait. And wait is always the most difficult. I find waiting on the Lord to be one of the hardest things required of a believer in Jesus Christ. But I will say this. That the Bible is replete with examples of individuals who chose to presumptuously move forward without waiting on God. And in each and every case, they found themselves only exhausting their problems further. So waiting on the Lord. Now Jesus begins and he says, now when you pray. It's not if, but when you pray. He gives us a negative example. You shall not be like the hypocrites. Now, this isn't just a random designation. It is specifically referring to the religious leaders of that day. For they, once again, speaking of the religious leaders, love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corner of the streets that they may be seen by men. And assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And I'm sure you can imagine here that these individuals love to make a spectacle of themselves as they are praying unto the Lord, drawing attention from the crowd that has gathered around them, displaying their self-righteousness and their personal piety before all in the manner in which they pray. Jesus says, you shall not be like that, for you have again your reward, the adoration of the people that are around you. So if I'm not meant to pray in that, re, in that manner, how then shall I pray? Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, 
And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus would have shocked the crowd by this point. There are two words that are used here in this one verse that would have given each and every listener of Jesus a moment of pause. Father. The Jewish people would have never, never presumptuously approached God and called him Father. Here in the Greek, it is Abba. They would have never presumptuously thought that they could enter before his presence when they have been shown and taught that the presence of God is exclusive only to a few. From Moses to the high priest that would go into the Holy of Holies and not even be in the presence of God, but in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant alone. Now you're saying that I can address him, Father? And by Jesus doing that, he was trying to allow those individuals listening, the, the, the simple people of Israel who had gathered to follow him, to understand that in the new covenant that he was about to uh, create, they could approach God the Father through Jesus and see him as a father. And this would have changed the entire dynamic of their prayer life, thinking of him and seeing him as their father. For the Jewish family structure was one of the strongest elements in the nation of Israel. The relationship between the father and the children were pre was sacred and precious. And Jewish men were always known to be approachable and accessible to their children. And Jesus is saying, your heavenly Father is always approachable and accessible to you. So it doesn't matter where you pray. And so therefore pray in a place where it is just you and Him. That when you pray in secret, He may reward you openly for those things that you have prayed for. And when you do pray, verse 7, do not think to use vain repetition as the heathens do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. In pagan practices, and of course he's talking about the Gentile pagan practices of the nations around the, the, the nation of Israel, he was talking about the manner in which individuals interacted with their God. In fact, we have two examples of vain repetition in the Bible itself. One is found back in the book of Kings. It is found in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. And it's one of my favorite chapters of the Old Testament. It's the chapter where Elijah takes on the 400 priests of Baal. And he says, enough's enough. If God is the one true God, then worship Him. If Baal is the true God, then worship Him. So let's find out who the true God is. You go up on your mountain, I'll go up on my mountain, we'll prepare an ox to be sacrificed. You bring everything you need, and whichever God lights the fire and consumes the ox will be the God, the one true God. So since he was once again confronted 
with the reality of being outnumbered, he let them go first. And he said to them, let us go and now you prepare beforehand since there are 400 of you. And so they did, they prepared everything, they prepared the altar, they prepared the sacrifice, and then they waited for their god Baal to show up. And as Baal apparently delayed, apparently delayed his coming, Elisha got impatient and says, hey, what's going on over there? Where is he? Is he sleeping? Is he gone? What's the problem? Is he busy? And that word busy in the Hebrew is, is he going to the bathroom? What is he doing? So they got infuriated, so they started chanting and they started cutting themselves to try to gain the attention of their God, to try to woo his favor to their plight and to their circumstance. And of course, none of it worked. And of course, when Elijah just simply called out to God, the sacrifice and the altar of his God was consumed. But when you come to the book of Acts, as Paul turned the city of Ephesus upside down, when they began to petition the great god Diana, they began to repeat and to chant over and over and over again until they worked themselves into a frenzy. Great is Diana of the Ephesians, hoping and thinking that they would gain her attention. We do not have to repeat ourselves over and over and over again. We don't need a mantra. We don't need a special saying to get God's attention. We don't need to wave our hands back and forward, cutting ourselves and displaying our, our devotion or consecration unto, the God, unto our God in any way, shape, or form. God is fully aware of everything that we are in need of before we even ask. That's because He is our Heavenly Father. So vain repetition. Now, vain repetition doesn't mean that when we pray, we don't pray for maybe the same prayer request over and over again. I prayed for my mom for over 25 years before she came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Vain repetition, again, is our attempt to gain our God's attention through repetitive means. And so verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, he says, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And so then in this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In this, the relationship is established. We see God as our Father but then Jesus adding, hallowed be thy name, is also saying that not only is he our loving Father in whom we can approach and we have access to in and through the person of Jesus Christ as our one true mediator, but also we must reverence him and respect him for who the God he is. Meaning that he is our loving Father. He is aware of the needs in which we have. 
but he's also the God of all creation. He's the sovereign king that reigns individually, apart from all. And though we have this very uh, intimate interaction and access to him, we must never forget in who he truly is. Back when I got saved, there were many who wanted to see and believe that their God was simply uh, their friend, their buddy. And often they would reduce that relationship to a place of... um, where it was no longer respectable. They no longer had honor or reverence for the God in whom they served. They tried to reduce him to that position to make him more relatable, to help them interact with him. But Jesus says that's not necessary. As your Lord and Savior, as the mediator between God the Father and us, our accessibility and access to him is always available. This is why the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that we can go boldly into the throne room of God to find help in our time of need, to find grace in that moment we need grace, that moment that we feel that we have failed and that failure has somehow condemned us to an exclusion away from God. It's at that moment specifically that we should come and run to God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I remember years ago when I was sharing Christ with some folks, I was talking about God being their heavenly Father. And this young lady said to me afterwards, she said, I was listening to you intently because I really wanted to know about what you were saying. And you had my attention all the way up until the point you called God my Father. For unfortunately, she had experienced uh, a horrific uh, experience due to her dad where she was molested by him. And she had a hard time seeing God apart from that. And I apologized to her. And I said how sorry I was to hear that her earthly father had hurt her in such a way, but I promised her her heavenly father would never do that. I then gave her a Bible and I asked her to start reading to discover the God in whom he is and the love in which he has demonstrated towards us, the unconditional love that he has displayed for us through the giving of his only begotten son. Sometimes our own interaction with our dads can sometimes hinder us because maybe we didn't have the best relationships with our father. Maybe something had happened where we were like that young lady, violated in such a way that should have never been. The one who was supposed to love us the greatest had let us down the most. That's not the God of the Bible. And we must give him the opportunity to show us that. For he is our Heavenly Father who cares and loves for us unconditionally, purely, and demonstrated that through Christ. He then goes on to say, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The coming kingdom was the hope and the anticipation of all Jewish people. 
They waited earnestly for the promises of Isaiah to be fulfilled the moment that Christ, their Messiah, would reign physically in Israel and rule the whole world from there. But Jesus did not come to establish his throne, his reign, his physical reign here on this earth the first time. He came to save us from our sin. So the concern here is this, that we look forward to the coming of Christ's kingdom, which he'll establish in the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20. But what we should be earnestly concerned with is fulfilling the will in which he has for us as individuals. Each and every day, living no longer for ourselves, but for our Heavenly Father. Adopting that prayer in which Jesus stated, Not my will, but your will be done. Allowing for us to know and to understand what it means to be a living sacrifice laid before Him, therefore proving what is that perfect will of God. I personally cannot wait for the kingdom of God to come to this earth. We will no longer need to be concerned about corruption. Wouldn't that be nice? Jesus ruling from Jerusalem physically. What an awesome thing that'll be. We can try to rid this world of corruption all we want, but we know that the fallen heart of man will always dominate this world. But the kingdom is coming. And the kingdom is already being established. Each and every individual that is saved in Christ is removed from darkness and brought to light, removed from death and brought to life. Each individual is translated from the fallen individual in despair to a new creation in Christ. The kingdom of God is already at hand and is already about. And so I may not be able to fix the world, but I can continue the mission in which Jesus started, and that is to seek and to save those who are lost. In verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Again, asking now for a need of ourselves, the provision that we need to survive here on this earth. Asking God to tend to us. And later on, He will demonstrate what that looks like as we seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and everything else being added on to us. But notice it says our daily bread. God says He'll supply all of our needs, but He doesn't say when He will supply all of our needs. Personally, he likes keeping me waiting until the 11th hour and the 59th minute. And I just hear that still small voice. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Yes, I trust you. Do you trust me? Yes, I trust you. We're getting close. Do you trust me? Yes, I trust you. And he always has provided. Always. And he's provided in such a way to know and to demonstrate that only it was only him who has done so. And he has provided in such a way that excludes any possibility of me giving glory or credit to anyone else. And then when I wait upon him for the next provision, he reminds me of his faithfulness in the past. And so asking for our daily bread is conditional about first and foremost seeking first the kingdom of God 
and its righteousness, and everything else shall be added unto you. I encourage you to read that later on in this chapter to see the ramifications and the, the broad aspect of that promise. And then he says in verse 12, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. For many Americans, the word debt means financial debt. In fact, the, they've reported this week that America is all too familiar with debt. We have way too much debt as a nation and as individuals. But that's not what he's referring to here. The word in the Greek that we represent with the word debt could be more aptly translated obligation. In the Jewish culture, if one was obligated to another, there was the connotation that someone had done something wrong to someone else and was obligated to remedy that wrong. And so he is basically asking, a, asking for forgiveness of sin. But seeing that sin in an interesting way as an obligation unto God. That God, you have truly created us in a perfect state. We have fallen. And because of that, I am obligated to you. And if I do not fulfill some type of obligation to you, then I will end in eternal death. Now, we know that God says that there is no way for us to fulfill that obligation, that an obligation can only be fulfilled in and through Christ. But just seeing ourselves obligated to God, and I don't even like using that word because in our culture, the ramifications of that word is much different than it was in Judaism. When we think about being obligated, we often don't equate that or equal that with being wrong. But they did. They had wronged somebody and they needed to rectify that wrong. And so they saw themselves as obligated to that person, in debt to that person. You know, if we saw our sins as God sees it, we would see and understand our obligation to Him. That we have to give an account for our sins and we will do so either in and of ourselves or in and through the person of Jesus Christ. One will save us and the other will not. That's what he is saying here. Now, there's a theological issue here that comes about. And this is addressed more in 14 and 15 also. We do not earn God's favor or forgiveness. It is a gift of grace. Okay? That's clear. So it would appear that if we see this verse, and then if this verse is expounded upon by verses 14 and 15, and let's turn there quick. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father uh, forgive your trespasses. Now, what is he saying here? This is very interesting to me. Again, we don't earn salvation. But Christ does give us an uh, imperative throughout the Gospels, and that's this. That one who has been forgiven by God needs to forgive others of their sin and of the wrongs in which they have committed against them. Okay? 
Think about that. Think about what Jesus said. If your Father has forgiven you, who are you not to forgive someone else? Okay? Theologians have often stated the confusion of Scripture often comes down to the understanding of two what is called the P practicalities. Okay? The P practicalities. Number one, and that is positionally. Positionally, in and through Christ, God the Father sees me, Eric, perfect. Okay? He looks at me through Christ and he sees me perfect, allowing for new life and fellowship with God the Father, positionally. But there's a second P that we have to be worried about. Practically. Though positionally God sees me, perfect. Practically, I haven't gotten there yet. We're all works in progress. Maybe some of you are closer than others, are closer than me. But we're all works in progress. We have not been perfected yet. We won't be until we are in the presence of the Lord. That perfection, that restoration is called sanctification. But it works on two different planes. Positionally, Believe it or not, God the Father sees us as the finished work in which we will be in Christ. From this position, I am still a work in progress, still dealing with my old nature, my old uh, thoughts and ways and so forth, and therefore I wrestle the flesh against the spirit and so forth. Paul says those things I, 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 I don't want to do, I do perfectly, and those things I you know, don't want to do, I, I'm sorry, you know what I, the saying let me get it right. Those things that I don't want to do, I do perfectly. And those things I want to do, I don't do at all. He wrestled in and of himself with that reality. So he is saying here that part of our sanctification is going before the Heavenly Father not to reestablish us positionally or continue to secure us in the family, but to allow for that continued communion relationship with God by dealing with our sin. And in so dealing with our sin through repentance and then allowing Him to forgive us, remember that 1 John 2.9 is written to Christians. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise to believers. Now, positionally, this is not in, in question, but practically, in my intimacy with God, it is incredibly profound to understand that my sin will cloud and sever that intimacy. That my sin will place me in a place where I feel dry before the Lord feel distant from him. Remember what James says, draw near to the Lord and he shall draw near to you. It's always an issue of us in the proximity to God. It's never God with us. He's always there, but it's us drawing close to him is the problem. And in through Christ, we can grow as close as we want to. So what he's talking about here, that if we have been forgiven of sins, who are we not to forgive others? And therefore, 
is a believer in Jesus Christ, if we are unwilling to forgive others of their sins, then the sins that we contend with to keep us distant from God and from that intimate relationship with him, why should he forgive us? It's more of a a family dynamic than a punitive dynamic here at this point. And that's what he is referring to. He goes on to say, then do not lead us into temptation. Do not allow us, he is saying, to rely on our own strength and our own ability to resist the temptations in which we face in this world. He's saying, do not lead us to a place where we are overwhelmed and overcome. And this is why Paul, I believe, wrote later and says, for no temptation is too great for you not to overcome. And then he tells us, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He made it abundantly clear that Satan was real. To understand the manner in which Satan works helps us navigate the world in which we are in. Paul made it abundantly clear that the whole armor of God is necessary to stand against the wilds of the devil. Paul made it abundantly clear also that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but in principalities, powers, and the, the rulers of this world. Satan is truly the ruler of this world. He has created and architected this world in a manner to appeal to the flesh of the individual. For John says that all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. To draw us and to attract us away from God. But then there's also the spiritual realm that we contend with, that draws us away from God, that tries to interfere with the plans and the purposes of God, but we have been promised by the word that nothing shall overcome the sovereign plans of God here in this world. And even when the satanic forces believe that they are succeeding and winning It is only to their embarrassment that God shows him that what they have done lines perfectly with his will. For when the crowd shouted Barabbas at the release of either him or Jesus, Satan thought that he had won by crucifying the coming of the Messiah, only to find out that Satan had played right into the hands of God. And I have no doubt that as Jesus hung there on the cross, Satan applauded and jeered and thought that he had won the battle. And then on the third day, he was cowering in a corner to discover what he had done. For he released the ultimate lion. For Jesus said, the ruler of this world, Satan has come to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come to destroy the works of the devil. I love the fact that my dad's bigger than their dad, don't you? Don't mess with my dad. But he is a, he is a reality. Satan is not the personification of evil. It, he was a created being that fell, an angel that fell. One-third of the angels fell with him at that moment when he tried to exalt himself 
and to be and asked and be required to be worshipped as God, as God the Father was. And in the book of Revelation, we find that Jesus Christ casts the false prophet, the Antichrist, and Satan into the lake of fire forever and ever. That tells me we've won. We've won the war. We just need to fight the battles, don't we? And we're never going to be able to fight the battles, either being impractical in this physical world or spiritually driven by the supernatural world. We're never going to be able to fight this battle apart from prayer. For Paul ends Ephesians 6 after describing the whole armor of God and says, most importantly, remember, pray. I think the deadliest position a Christian can place themselves in is on their knees. You want to start taking the battle to him, get on your knees. Start praying. Pray for yourself. Pray for your family. Pray for your loved ones. Get into the fight. Get into the campaign knowing that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. And if you ever have that opportunity to pray with someone who is just uniquely gifted, as I like to say, take that opportunity. You'll be changed for the rest of your life. There are times where I feel that in, my, in prayer with individuals, that I am taken right to the throne room of God. And the people who pray are not people who would appear outwardly strong and confident. They're often quiet and meek and humble. But when they bow their head and close their eyes, oh man. Prayer is the greatest privilege we have, folks. And I know that we are going to regret the moment we stand before Jesus Christ and realize how we have neglected it each and every day. Don't overcomplicate it. Keep it simple. As those wonderful scholars showed us at the beginning, keep it simple. For our Heavenly Father knows what you are in need of even before you ask. Let's just read this together, if we may. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word.